Remember the conversation we were having a couple days ago via text about hospital reimbursement for vaginal birth versus cesarean? And if providers were incentivized to have vaginal birth by getting paid more for vaginal birth? I only think of interventions as being chemical or mechanical, but that is very much an intervention to have your baby taken from you. That's not normal. And it's not it's not a benign one. It's very easy to hear what hospital policy is and to feel you have to succumb to it, even if it doesn't feel right to you, but you don't have to succumb to it. How do you know if you're with the right provider? Not just what you look for when it's wrong. How do you know when it's right? It cannot be that she simply absorbs having a baby and is expected to do the things she typically did. But she might think that she can. Especially like an overachiever type, yep. which is highly problematic. <laughs> yeah. Not a good type to be. Or your own <laughs> expectations. It's a trap. It is a trap. All right. Next question is, what are some reasons a C-section is required? I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth Podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. Hello, it's March and it just snowed three inches. It's a, it's, it's that month where you never know what <laughs> you it's going to You never know what you're going to get. <laughs> T-shirts one day, snow boots the next. I got out and took a lovely walk in the freshly fallen snow. It was beautiful. So how do you want to start? Well, remember when we were talking about the um, nurse curse on the podcast the other day, the woman who- That was submit- the January Q&A, actually. The other, the other day. Yeah. Okay. Everything was the other day. <laughs> it was a little <laughs> while ago now. Um, you know, the, anyway, she heard the episode and she wrote in to explain- um, she had mentioned what kind of nurse she was. And you were saying, this is strange. I wonder if she's in another country. Cause she said she was like a, what did she say? She called herself a delivery nurse. Yes. And you were right. wondering if was she like, was what is not. That? From- is that yeah. A, yeah. Is that apparently it's a thing in the United States. So here's what she said. Hi, my name is Jennifer. I was listening to episode 145 last night, the January Q and a, and I just wanted to say thank you for answering my question on the nurse curse birth trauma. I've been trying to switch my mindset a lot and actually doing pretty well. It makes me so ready to get out of the hospital industry and into healthcare that I believe in. Anyway, to answer your question, the delivery nurse role I do is called an admit nurse. I'm a trained postpartum nurse and have my RN certificate in maternal newborn nursing. I am also trained in NRP or neonatal resuscitation. So I attend the delivery of babies and provide all their initial assessment weight length vaccines, UGH in parentheses, and help initiate breastfeeding and provide education. I work in Denver, Colorado. So yes, I am here and such things do exist, but most hospitals do not do this. Right. So in most hospitals, you have a labor and delivery nurse and you have a postpartum nurse. So you have labor and delivery and you have the nurse who helps assist the woman through labor. And then you have postpartum. So after the baby's born, the mother and the baby are transported together to a different part of the hospital. They go to the postpartum floor and she's sort of in between. And the most important takeaway is that ridiculous phrase nurse curse that someone made up just because it rhymes and sounds catchy. <laughs> that is not affecting her as a pregnant woman who is a nurse. <laughs> well, apparently it's quite that a someone came up with that. Also in our interview with Shelby, she said that she suffered from the nurse curse. 
Yeah. Apparently it's very common. I, it's a thing. I have three nurses in my hypnobirthing class starting this Sunday, so I'm sure I'll be hearing much more about it, but they have their own subculture to deal with as far as those things. Is there anything among midwives where that comes up? Like I was just trying to think that. I was, um, you got pregnant in maybe, midwifery but, school. Yeah. I don't know, but I didn't buy into that. So, And everyone, like you had over a dozen people there. <laughs> we had a party at Lilith's birth. <laughs> so they were expecting the birth to go very well, and it did. That's right. And I was expecting it to go very well, and it did. <laughs> exactly. And the nurse curse is doing the opposite to nurses. Right. It's implying yes. that they don't expect it to go well. So that's that's too bad because it gives them that extra obstacle to overcome. Right. The difference is that in midwifery school, we are constantly talking about normal physiologic birth. Whereas in hospital birth, you are constantly seeing all the interventions and the downstream consequences of those interventions. So your mindset is more that birth is dangerous. Okay. Well, we're glad to hear she's doing well and that she heard the episode. So let's jump in with our questions. Are you ready? Let's go. All right. So the first one says this. Let's see. I just found your amazing podcast not long ago. I have a question. Maybe you can answer. How do you deal with boundaries with family slash in-laws postpartum? I wish to have no visitors for at least a few days, if not longer. Last pregnancy, I developed, I developed postpartum anxiety. I had people visit the hospital in the first week and come over and just want to hold the baby. I didn't rest. I didn't need people to just come in and hold my newborn baby for hours. I'm not good at vocalizing or standing my ground around family, but this time I want things to be different. When I talk to my mother about this and the fact that I want to rest and bond as a family of four before receiving visitors, she said, can't your husband bring the baby over to my house? Am I crazy about wanting some time to bond and rest with my baby? Absolutely not. (laughs) Absolutely not. Show of hands. Um, 100% of people say absolutely not. Can't your husband bring the baby over to my house? Uh, is that a joke? This is the problem that P- as soon as you give birth, you know, in pregnancy, it's all about the mother, all about the mother. And she gives birth and suddenly it's all about the baby. And she can sit there with postpartum anxiety and no one is even recognizing it. Like her daughter said, can we just stay home and bond? And the, her mother is responding by saying, well, can you bring the baby to my house? Like, well, that would kind of break the bond. Make the break. <laughs> right. Like the mother is thinking, well, the baby needs to bond with me too, which of course she's excited about, but yeah. A little respect, a little boundaries, a little reverence. Time will come. That time will come. So as we always say, the first two weeks postpartum, you need to guard them like your life depends on it. Those two, those two weeks are meant for you and your baby and your partner to just rest and recover. And mom and baby really should be together around the clock. One phrase you hear us say this a lot on the podcast. So we're going to say it again, because I think it needs to become a part of everyone's vernacular to say, this isn't serving me. It's kind of a gentle, but firm boundary you can establish with anyone. So if you're having a conversation with your mom and you're saying, look, we want to bond as a family of four after the baby is born and just assess how I'm feeling day to day. And she starts to push back to say, look, this isn't serving me right now to keep having this conversation. Just please hear me. And you know, we, we know how excited you are to meet the baby. We know that this is a really high priority, but it's really not serving me to try to talk about this right now and plan everything beforehand. We're just going to have to wait and see how I feel. There are gentle ways of establishing boundaries. If for those of you who struggle with doing this, um, and then the other thing is, you know, I have a mini episode from fall of 2021 about nonviolent communication, and it's very helpful with things like this. You can just simply say, when you blank, I feel blank. So look, mom, when you ask, when you get to see the baby, 
or you ask if my husband can bring the baby to your house, I'm not feeling heard or I'm feeling anxious because I feel like this is going to become a battle in the time when I want the most peace. Um, Just practice that language and prepare yourself to say it. If you really struggle immensely with boundaries, then put it in the form of an email, preferably email and not text because text gives that feeling like you have to keep responding, but just think it through carefully, speak for yourself, be gentle and firm and you need to ex- you need to practice this so that you can teach your children how to establish boundaries with you one day honestly everyone has to learn this from hopefully from their parents you can also say that your midwife instructed you to do so that this was sort of like doctor's orders <laughs> um i mean i hate that term but yeah, because there's no such thing everybody kind of gets that <laughs> yeah exactly so the midwife strongly you know, recommends i will i will say that too i'll be like midwife's orders but ultimately it's up to you but at least it kind of takes the burden of responsibility off you and you say my midwife my doctor said i have to do 2 weeks in bed that it's important for my health and the health of the baby my lactation consultant whoever it is blame it on somebody else that's fine just say this is what i have to do and you deserve to relish that time. You don't get that particular time back. And it goes so fast. You just don't realize how it seems like so much, but it really just flies by and it makes all the difference. Next question. Is it breastfeeding question? So this one is for you, Trisha. My baby has white blisters on her lips after breastfeeding, but no tongue tie. Is this normal? Hard to say. <laughs> Have you heard of that? Oh yeah. I see it all the time. Um, so a little bit of blistering, especially right here in the cute little, you know, heart area of the lip can be totally normal. And that's just sort of from, from friction, from nursing. Um, if the lips are fully blistered all the way around, then it usually does indicate that the baby is struggling too much to hold on and they're struggling to hold on either because the latch is, well, they're struggling to hold on because the latch is poor either because they are not properly positioned or possibly they have some type of oral restriction. What does oral restriction mean? Uh, Lip tie, tongue tie, cheek tie, something that is making it harder for the baby to get a wide enough grasp on the breast and they're working too hard to hold on. What is a cheek tie? Oh, it's called a buckle tie. It's where the cheeks are a little too tight to the gums. Is something attached inside? Yeah, something so just tied. Like, just just like you have a frenulum under your tongue, then you have an upper frenum that connects your lip to your gums, and then you also have uh, folds of skin that connect your cheeks to your gums. You mean that's what we shouldn't have, but some babies do. No, you do have them. You should have them, but they can be too tight. I don't think I have that. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see. Go around. I'm pretty um, sure you do, but my they... cheeks are free and clear inside my mouth. <laughs> Well, they are somehow at some point attached to your gums in the very, very back of the mouth, right? So as your mouth grows and stretches, these, these Ah. tissues also stretch, but little tiny babies, sometimes they're a little too tight and it's actually increasingly common when babies go in for tongue tie for them to cut the upper lip and the cheeks away from the gums. Oh my God. I know. Wow. So I would say that this could be normal or it could be an indication. It's a, it's kind of like an orange flag. You know, let's take a look. Let's see what's going on. This one says, hi, ladies. I hope you can answer a question for me. The hospital says they will have to take the baby away after a short period of bonding because the pediatrician will need to check the baby. I want to know what we can do so the baby is never without one of us. Thank you very much. 
Well, the pediatrician, despite how it seems, is not the priority. You have to remember you have all the rights. You can keep your baby. You can refuse to let your baby go. I mean, without a medical reason, there's there's no purpose for doing that. If you do decide to let your baby go for any reason, your partner can always go with the baby. Um, but it, it's very easy to hear what hospital policy is and to feel you have to succumb to it, even if it doesn't feel right to you. But you don't have to succumb to it. And it isn't evidence-based. It isn't better for your baby to go off without you. I don't want to like distress anyone who does do that. It's fine, but you have the right not to do that. And it really isn't, I don't even want to say it's fine. Honestly, it really isn't evidence-based at all. (laughs) I don't even want to say it's fine. I just don't want to distress anyone who's made that choice. You want to know how midwives at home check the baby? On the mother, skin to skin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's, there's no separation. I mean, I mean, they might not, it might not be on their body. It it could be, but it usually is. I mean, it's, that's the intention. That's the default. I mean, I feel like most of the time it's sort of like in the mother's lap or like next to mom on the bed, but she is in Contact. contact with their baby. It doesn't have to be like on her chest. I mean, you do have to take the baby off the mom to weigh, and then you sort of, it's easiest just to put the baby down on a flat surface to do the, the measuring. But the point is that the baby is never felt, it's never felt that the baby's being taken away from the mother. It's she's right there. She could pick up her baby at any moment. And there's no reason in the hospital that the baby needs to go out of the room. The Hospitals ex- have to stop doing this. It really it's ridiculous. Stop. It is. It's they have ridiculous. to stop doing this. They should do it exactly the same way. The mother has the baby in the bed and the baby is just simply there on the bed with the mother and they do the exam and it doesn't take long. A newborn exam can be done in a matter of minutes. We just shouldn't be doing this. It's don't let your baby out of your sight. I mean, unless your baby's going to the NICU, there's no reason. It's unbelievable that they're still doing things that we know are not evidence-based. And I just want to point out that Bonding always happens. So if your baby was separated or you were probably separated from your own mothers at birth, um, bonding always happens, but that isn't the point. The point is that the mother and baby are, they're still, in my opinion, and in my language, they're still one organism. They're not supposed to be separated. And that's why it feels wrong to be separated. And your body is prepared to release a whole lot of endorphins. And it really can't get into that mode fully when the baby just simply isn't there let alone what it does to breastfeeding. Right. Right. A four hour window of time that your baby is out of the room. That's multiple missed feedings. Mm -hmm. And you posted a really great item on Instagram a few days ago about the relationship between the number of times a baby breastfeeds in the first 24 hours and a significant reduction in the incidence of jaundice. Yeah. We should clarify. We should, uh, specify that that was specifically related to exaggerated jaundice. So it doesn't mean that your baby will have zero amount of jaundice because your baby can have jaundice and it can be absolutely normal. But the number of times that a baby goes to the breast successfully, efficiently, and effectively feeding at the breast in the first 24 hours is directly correlated with their level of exaggerated jaundice, meaning jaundice that might need to be clinically addressed. Inversely correlated. Inversely correlated. Yes. Yeah. So babies who went to the breast more than nine times in the first 24 hours, effectively, none of them in this particular study, which was 140 babies, none of them had jaundice that needed management. Is that otherwise pretty common? Because I know most, 
I know most couples are told their baby has a little bit of jaundice, but I think most babies have some, a lot of babies do end up having a lot of heel sticks to be tested or they're readmitted for jaundice or they have to go under the lights for a period of time. And that's just more separation, less breastfeeding. So if we can head that off, if we can cut that off at the start by, you know, having the baby go to the breast nine times, that's a lot in 24 hours. The, the way we like to frame this a lot is one intervention always leads to another. And just to have everyone recognize that separating the baby from you is an intervention. We don't recognize it as one. We only think of interventions as being chemical or mechanical, but that is very much an intervention to have your baby taken from you. That's not it's normal. Not, it's not a benign one. People think, oh, what's the big deal? You know, they don't need to eat right now. They're okay. They're, they're warm. They're safe. Even clothing is an intervention. And, you know, all this talk of like skin to skin, like it's this funky, crunchy, new wave idea. I mean, every mammal on the on earth is bonding skin to skin and we're socialized and cultured and, and we have clothing and it seems like, oh my gosh, remove that to, yes, of course, from nature's perspective, like what is this thing between you and your baby? So skin to skin is, um, it's, it's optimal because clothing in itself is an intervention. And it's very helpful when you just recognize all these things as interventions, it's very helpful. And to recognize that one always leads to another. So this is no exception. Separating the baby leads to other issues. Yeah. And skin to skin isn't just for the first hour after birth. Skin to skin is an ongoing thing. So the fact that we take these babies and we bundle them up and swallow them in these cute little blankets and put hats on them and like right, right from the get go, we're already, that's a major intervention. Just like you said, it's just take those clothes off, get that baby on you, keep your baby with you and everything else will work a lot easier from there. Right. Hey there, all you amazing, strong, and beautiful women, especially you new moms and moms-to-be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com and cherry on top, you guys can use code down to birth at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy. Down to birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sitz bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. 
Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed, a radically better prenatal vitamin. Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy-to-take vanilla powder, perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, Head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. All right, next question is, what are some reasons a C-section is required? Not just quote recommended, but actually medically necessary. So let's talk about this because this is an important question. I always say to my clients, our work would be very easy if we just got hell bent on a vaginal birth and said, no, no, no to any C-section, but our work is difficult. And the education has to be deep and rich because we have to be able to assess whether it's necessary. So I remember the conversation we were having a couple of days ago via text about, um, hospital reimbursement for vaginal birth versus cesarean birth. And if providers were incentivized to have vaginal birth by getting paid more for vaginal birth, then vaginal birth would become a lot more, um, lives would be saved. Lives, not only lives, lives would be saved, but the incidence of these unnecessary cesareans would dramatically decrease. We know that at least 50% of them are unnecessary. And And that's probably a lot more than that, actually, because when you look at home birth, or when you look at Ina May's statistics, or you look at midwifery led care units, you have a cesarean rate 10 to 15% or less. And it's 60, 70, 80% in some hospitals in the United States. So what are some of the real reasons? What are some of the actual, like, absolutely, you must have a cesarean birth. There's no way around this. Let's talk about that. So a couple things. Um, well, the, let's say let's start with the most common reason that people have C-sections: failure to progress. Right, but failure to progress is a recommended and often unnecessary C-section. Failure to progress is not the same as CPD, which stands for cephalopelvic disproportion. That means that a baby's head actually is too large to fit in a pelvis for some crazy and usually unknown reason. It's really uncommon. Most of the time, it's really just malposition. The baby's head isn't positioned properly, so it can't fit through. And for whatever reason, we can't get that baby to make the necessary movements to get their head aligned in the right position to allow the pelvis to relax and open and the baby to fit through. So according to the American College of Nurse Midwives, they say that CPD occurs in one out of 250 births. True 
CPD. That's less than half a percent of births. That still probably includes some of those malpositioned. Absolutely. I mean, are they really having all those women on their hands and knees or side lying or in a squatting position? I bet it's, it has to be, it has to be rarer than that. It has to be because we know they're not still right. That's still very low. That's less than half a percent. Right. And, and, and C-section rate is 33%. So, yeah. So we're still looking at tons of C-sections done for unnecessarily outside of CPD. You have cord prolapse that that's a life-threatening situation. So cord prolapse is when the baby's umbilical cord actually uh, comes out through the cervix ahead of the baby, ahead of the head. And this is a very dangerous situation because now the cord is um, no longer protected inside the body and the cord can be compressed and the baby's blood flow basically can be blocked. So it's a, it is an emergent situation. You want the head first, not the cord. Right. It's a dangerous situation that could create restriction to the baby. Um, and it is an emergent situation that requires cesarean birth most, if not all of the time, because the cord is the oxygen supply. So if it gets pinched at any point, that's your baby's source of oxygen. That's it why. will. Right. I mean, as your baby's head comes through, there's no, there's no other way. The cord is going to get compressed and the blood flow is going to be restricted mm-hmm. significantly. Okay. Okay. So cord prolapse, uh, certain types of breach. We know that not all types of breach are safe for vaginal birth. A transverse lie isn't technically considered breach, but that's the top reason for a cesarean section as far as positioning. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. So another reason that there are, you know, there are four different types of breach birth and uh, most of the time, like a frank breach birth is compatible with vaginal birth. We know that we had did an episode with Dr. Stu, but there are some breach variations that are not recommended for vaginal birth. Another one would be placenta previa. So placenta previa is when the placenta is fully blocking the cervix. It's covering the cervix. So as the cervix is dilating, the placenta is potentially being stretched away from the cervix and your risk of bleeding is significant. And basically the baby can't get through because the cervix, the cervix is blocked by the placenta, which is a dangerous situation. That's all that comes to my mind right now. I mean, obviously fetal distress, a true, you know, fetal distress, a baby's heart rate that is too low and not coming back up, not recovering persistent, low fetal heart rate. You know, you want that baby born as quickly as possible. And depending on where you are in the birth process, that very well may be via C-section. And this is an important question to ask. I mean, what are some legitimate reasons for a C-section where a C-section is actually the safer means of delivering the baby, but you don't have to concern yourself with this too much when you hire a provider you actually completely trust. And that's where women are coming from. Sometimes when they ask this question, they're, they're so armed, they're arming themselves with this and they want every possible scenario because they really don't feel absolute trust with their provider. So just assess whether or not that's where you're coming from with this question, but it is, it's a reasonable question to ask, just see if that's where it's coming from. Yeah. That's why we always say one of the most important questions you need to ask your provider is what is their C-section rate? I mean, if you're working with a provider whose C-section rate is more than 30%, then you you you're, you should be concerned. Well, you can tell just by how they answer your questions even, you know, because you never really know what their C-section rate is, but yeah, if they admit to it being over and some do, 
That is a red flag. Um, be sure to check out our three red flag episodes um, from fall of 2021 as well. First, second, and third trimester red flags. What's can that? Pull, can you pull the number out of your head? What were they? One of them was 128. <laughs> think, think, think. I'm going to look. One eight, hang on. Let me guess. 118. I think the first one was 118. 118. Your first trimester provider red flag. Okay. Was the other one 126? 124. I was four. 124 provider red flags. And then what was it? One, when was it? 129? 129 provider flags in your third trimester. Good job. Two out of three. And then don't forget episode number 122 provider green lights. So we've got three on red flags and one with Barbara. Barbara Harper, who we love on provider green lights. How do you know if you're with the right provider? Not just what you look for when it's wrong. How do you know when it's right? I just, I just want to say that in my community of all the couples I teach, I virtually never hear of anyone having a, uh, a C-section because of failure to progress, because it is a non-medically indicated situation. It is a manipulation of the situation to say, well, you're taking too long. And the couples I work with aren't falling for that because that in and of itself isn't a reason for a cesarean section. That's, uh, that would be a very risky thing to do when all that's happening is a prolonged labor. but the most common reason that I see is uh, fetal positioning. And you almost can't emphasize enough for that expecting couple, how much it would serve them to invest in the right exercises and the right techniques and practices to increase the likelihood of a, a baby that's very well positioned. Yeah. And when in labor, making sure that you are upright and mobile, because if you're not moving throughout labor, you're not getting the messages that your baby is signaling to you about how to move in a way that allows the baby to move down into the pelvis and get optimally positioned. Yeah. The head could be asynclitic. I mean, you don't know what exactly the situation is, but um, anything you can do to. That is almost always the case when labor is taking too long. It's, it's a positioning issue as you said. So then the question becomes at what point do they call it CPD versus just more time? I mean, I think the best outcome in that scenario, when it does have to be a C-section is when the mother recognizes it and says, okay, I have truly tried. I have truly satisfied this desire to experience my birth vaginally. And I recognize that it's time now to go to plan B. She has to get to the point of saying, okay, you know, of course, if there's fetal distress leading up to that, if there's an issue, a medical indication leading to that point, they have to intervene. But if there isn't, she deserves to fulfill that. Yes. When mom and baby are both doing fine, you go as long as it takes until mom decides she doesn't want to do it that way anymore. But that isn't how we're typically seeing it. And that would make a big difference. And frankly, sometimes that difference also is what ends up giving her the vaginal birth she worked so hard for because some women, as difficult as it must be, they vaginally birth a baby after six hours of pushing. And it's that's exhausting, but she ends up with a vaginal birth and a much easier second birth. If she has another baby in the future, that's the, I think that's the key. I may have mentioned this on the podcast once before, but the most amazing pushing situation I ever witnessed was a woman who pushed for 18 hours, Yeah, 18 hours. And she still ended up with a vaginal birth and her, you know, her baby's head had to do a lot of molding to fit through, but it did. It did. And the baby was absolutely fine. And she was willing to do that. Was it mild or intense? Because sometimes it's slower and milder and sometimes it's. She slept through a lot of it. No. So she was fully, 
fully dilated for 18 hours. She wasn't actively pushing for 18 hours. She was amazing. Ready to push. Yeah. I mean, it was, she got to rest through that. It was incredible. Yeah. But it can be done. I mean, this is just the, the, the body adapts, the baby adapts, the babies found a way to get through the way of the ability of a baby's head to mold to that degree and then return to normal is just, it's incredible feat of biology. Was the head very misshapen? Very much so. I mean, you were, it was sort of shocking. I, I've seen some online that are honestly shocking to look at the shape of some baby's heads when they come in. If you do a web search on um, newborn head molding, you might be stunned at some of the pictures you see. And yes, but all the heads, heads come back to normal. They all go back to normal and yeah. they're all absolutely fine. I mean, this is what our bodies are designed to do. So it's, it's nature knows, man. Do the parents ever see the baby after their birth like that and feel really uncomfortable with what the baby looks like? Or do they? I'm sure. I'm sure they do. <laughs> they understand. However, you know, they're always being reassured that this is not how your baby's head is going to remain. <laughs> <laughs> and it goes away incredibly quickly. Yeah. A few days, right? Yeah. Sometimes within hours, it's back to normal. Amazing. Totally amazing. Aha. What's your best advice for splitting parenting duties after the baby is born? (laughs) Oh, don't get us started. The mother gets two jobs and the husband gets all the others. And her two jobs are taking care of herself and the baby. That's it. Really? I think. No. Yeah. I just, I'm so happy that I guessed right. (laughs) So we talk about this in our fourth trimester workshop. My advice is just as when you moved in together, you had to sit down together and say, who's doing what we live together now. How are we going to run this home? Who is typically going to do what? And you have to do that again. And the mistake that most people make, she'll somehow absorb all that housework because she's home all day. She can't, she can't do it. It's too much. It's too much for anyone to do. She's exhausted. She doesn't have the ability. She cannot absorb a baby on top of anything else that she's currently doing. There will be days it's hard enough to take a shower. What do you think, Trisha? Yeah, I'm thinking, gosh, I should have done all that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Saved me a lot of stress. Um, Okay, so my comment about, you know, the two things basically applies to at least the first two weeks, ideally the first six, right? I mean, first two weeks we're talking, she does nothing. She doesn't touch a dish. She doesn't prepare a glass of water. She doesn't water a single plant. She doesn't feed the pets. She rests in bed with her baby and that's it. She feeds and she rests and she eats and that's it. Um, Beyond that, I agree with what you're saying. I think you really have to (laughs) make a concerted effort to figure out what is realistic and what's not. And that's probably going to change. So you need to be checking in over time on this because most of us will feel like we can do a lot more than we can. Um, And take it from us. We both overdid things in our first postpartum experience and it didn't work out that well. Big regret. Big regret. Doing too much, that perfectionist mindset, feeling like, I was always behind. It's tough. It's really tough. So I think you have to check in on it sort of regularly. Like, how's this going? What can I give up? What, what needs to be, what needs to be shifted from my plate to yours? I think you're right. Do check in. I think that's the key because in the beginning, the first two weeks, yes, she doesn't lift a finger. She doesn't pour herself her own glass of water. She is taken care of while she's taking care of the baby four months out. 
um, it has to change. She'll be exhausted and her partner should also be taking on a bit much exhausted. (laughs) It just, it it cannot be that she simply absorbs having a baby and is expected to do the things she typically did before, but she might think that she can. So likely she will. Yeah. Especially like uh, an overachiever type, which is highly problematic. (laughs) Not a good type to be. Lower expectations, (laughs) please. It's a trap. It's a total Uh, trap. It is a trap. Okay. Quickies. All right. Here is the first quickie. I don't normally leak in between consistent feedings and haven't seen the other breast, the one she's not feeding on, have a letdown at the same time. Is this any concern? No. So you don't have to leak to have sufficient milk supply and the other breast doesn't have to drip and have a, although there probably is a letdown on the breast, it doesn't actually have to be dripping milk for you to have a letdown on the other side. Finding the perfect pregnancy and breastfeeding bra is no easy task. Your search is now over. Meet Davin and Adley, a mother-owned pumping, nursing, and maternity bra company with a unique, comfortable, and stylish cropped cami. This item is perfect to wear all day long from day one of your pregnancy right through the end of your breastfeeding journey and probably beyond. The Amelia cami makes pumping and breastfeeding easy while looking and feeling good on your body. It works seamlessly for both wearable pumps and flange pumps, and you can breastfeed in it. It also has a beautiful stretch lace back. You can sleep in it, dress up in it, go out in it, whatever you want to do in it. And trust us, the quality in this item and all of their items are top notch. They're soft, durable, and attractive. These bras will truly go the distance. Davin and Adley carry a gorgeous selection of maternity and nursing wear, and they have an innovative one-piece breast pad that we've never seen anywhere else. So no more losing those solo breast pads, ladies. Go ahead and check out the full collection of maternity and nursing items at davinandadley.com and use your promo code down to birth to save 15%. All right, breastfeeding moms. Do you want to know one of our all-time favorite items for your nursing journey? If you know us, you probably could guess it. Yep, it's the Silverette Nursing Cup. These little nipple heroes not only protect, but also heal because they're made of real silver. It is naturally antimicrobial, antifungal, and anti-inflammatory. These little cups will be your best friend in the early sensitive weeks of breastfeeding your baby. And our favorite part is they last literally forever. You can pass them on just like you would a favorite piece of jewelry. Head on over to silverettusa.com and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH to save 15%. All right. The next one says prolapse. <laughs> is it common and fixable? What what prolapse are we referring to? <laughs> I'm. We can have. You don't. I can't can have bladder. I can, think. I think they're. I thought they might cord. Oh, cord. I, I <laughs> so many types. Okay, cord prolapse. prolapse is not fixable. Uterine prolapse, bladder prolapse. Those are the two most common that you would have post baby. And yes, difficult but fixable. Absolutely. Yes. With pelvic floor physical therapy, not with your obstetrician. Depending on the severity. I mean, sometimes uterine prolapse results in hysterectomy. It depends on how severe it is. After the birth, you mean like weeks later, it could happen? Weeks, months, even even years. Really? Yeah. Because the muscles just, if they're very, very relaxed, the, the ligaments and the muscles that they just keep getting more relaxed over time and the prolapse gets worse. All right. 
Next one. Why do some women's oh, I always wanted to know this? I'm so happy. Someone is asking, why do some women's feet get bigger in pregnancy? Did that happen to you? No, so it didn't I happen to me. Where my feet got smaller after pregnant. <laughs> I have been a size nine since like eighth grade. <laughs> so I'm lucky they didn't get bigger. Parts of us just grow. <laughs> Come on. That's the whole thing. You know, if people say the funniest things like, well, you weigh more, so your feet have to get bigger to balance your body. And I'm like, no, that is no, not, that's like, not why. that makes no sense at all. They get a little extra growth kick in pregnancy. No one knows why. And some, for some women, it doesn't happen. And for you, you went the other way and they got, come on, they got smaller. I don't think they, they actually got smaller. I, I swear. I used to be a seven and a half, just like I used to be five, four, nine, four, five, three and three quarters. And now I'm five, seven, two. <laughs> three quarters. <laughs> that's so endearing. <laughs> Um, you're only five, three and three quarters and your shoe went down. I don't know. I think shoes changed. No, no. My height didn't actually go down. I've always been, <laughs> I've always been five, three and three quarters. I no, just that's probably, I was five, four. Okay. That's, that's fine. Rounding is okay. A little bit. <laughs> that's okay. What else would everyone like to know about our feet and our height? <laughs> okay. Next quickie. That wasn't very quick. All right. These are quickies. <laughs> Gotta remember that. Um, if I had gestational diabetes in my first pregnancy, will I have it in my next? Mm, I want to say no. I want to say no, but it's possible. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So there is a correlation. If you had it once you are a little bit more likely to have it again. Um, and that's just related to how the hormones of your body work, but there are definitely things you can do to try to not have it. Right. So balance, learning how to eat differently. Losing. Well, this is the perfect time to say next week, Wednesday, April 6th, we have an outstanding episode dedic dedicated to gestational diabetes with Lily That's Nichols. Right. So, right. um, we are she... definitely going to be doing a deep dive on that next Wednesday. Okay. So we'll leave it to her to answer. <laughs> yeah, that was, that's, we're excited to release that one. All right. There are two more. I've heard from another birth professional. So I, this is clearly from a birth professional that babies shouldn't be bathed after birth. And she writes in capitals for weeks. Is this true or false? Well, I wouldn't say shouldn't, right. you don't exactly. have to, they don't need to be bathed. You can, if you want to, I don't think it's harmful to bathe them. I, maybe she's talking about vernix and I don't think so because that absorbs quickly. I think she's saying, should, can they really go weeks? And the answer is they, yes, they can. Your baby is coming out of a sterile environment and will be immaculate at birth. And, you know, they don't really get dirty. You'll be taking care of the diaper area. So they're going to stay clean. Start bathing them when you're, when you're ready. It's often several days or a couple of weeks in it's, and it's really not an issue. I wonder if she's thinking about the cord and not getting the cord wet because I don't think she's, okay. I don't think she's talking about that. I think she's just talking about the fact that some providers say you can, there's absolutely no rush. You can wait weeks, but she thinks shouldn't. I think she just, I think that's just her choice of words. Okay. I mean, no, some might say shouldn't, some might say shouldn't. I don't so know trying, why. That's what I'm trying to, that's where my brain is going for what reasons. Yeah. Uh, the cord, the vernix, the skin. I mean, the cord is <clears> off <throat> by then. The vernix is absorbed by then. Mm -hmm. I hope we answered that. <laughs> Well, I think we all know that it is safe to bathe your baby um, right. within weeks. And if you don't want to, you don't have to. That's okay. fine. Either way. Mm -hmm. Cool. Next question. Um, what part of delivery surprises people the most? Oh, we should ask people on Instagram. Definitely. Yeah, we'll, ask we'll do that. I, I think it's got to be transition. 
Yeah, I I think I was going to say, see, it just goes to show it's there's no clear answer. I was going to say the 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 pushing stage really surprises people sometimes. Yeah. Either how intense it is or how satisfying it is. I think that stage but yeah, transition is I don't know. That's what people, I would have said. A lot of people also say the post-birth, like they meet the shaking after they didn't expect that. That's very surprising and unexpected. But that's a good question. We'll throw that out to our community and see what comes back. True. That's a wrap. All right. If you do love the podcast, we would be so grateful for a review on Apple Podcasts as that does really make a difference for us. Even better, a share. If you have a mom's group community or an Instagram page, anywhere you're willing to share, tag us, anything that's fun and engaging with us, but please share the podcast if it is serving you in any way and you think it might serve others. And again, thank you so much for being a part of this. We'll catch you guys next week. See ya. Thanks for joining us at the Down to Birth Show. You can reach us at Down to Birth Show on Instagram or email us at contact at downtobirthshow.com. All of Cynthia's classes and Trisha's breastfeeding services are held live, online, serving women and couples everywhere. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. My mother just walked in the room. How are you, Laura? (laughs) (laughs) Mom, what part of delivery giving birth surprised you the most? Surprised me the most? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, let me think. Surprise me the most. How little your babies were? <laughs> were they little? I was no. only five fourteen. No, no. Oh my gosh, no. I was ten three. We both have small moms, small framed moms. I was three weeks early. She has to come into the microphone. Oh, say it in here. Say it in here. Right now, <laughs> I'm not on. You're on camera. It's live. <laughs> Our followers didn't see you. It's just Cynthia. us. Okay. It's just Cynthia. Okay. So um, it was, what part of birth surprised you the most? Okay. For me, it was how easy it was. I know that sounds like not what your norm is, but I did it four times so easy. And I was like, wow, I could just have 10, you know, it's just so easy. We all just slipped out. They just slipped out. I mean, like I just would just walk. Now I did it in the hospital, but it was natural. I just walked around until the baby, the, the last one, I just walked, I don't know how many miles, six miles in the hospital and then sat on a rocking chair and started rocking. And then they just said, you got to get on the bed because the baby's popping out and out pop tail. Amazing. Okay, Cynthia. <laughs> she said, okay, Cynthia, that was fun. There we go. A little something different.